Well, the Advent story, as we've often noted, has some very sharp edges to it. In fact, every year that I read through these infancy narratives in the Gospels, I am always struck by the lack of sentimentality in the stories. There is a shadow that hangs over the incarnation, and that shadow can be menacing. And it's right there from the beginning. It's menacing because it's nothing but the shadow of the cross. And nowhere, nowhere in the Gospels is this shadow seen in its full, lethal brutality more clearly than in our text this morning, which is the Gospel lesson that I just read from Matthew 2. I mean, think of it this way. The 12 days of Christmas, which traditionally run from Christmas Day to January 6th to the Epiphany. The 12 days of Christmas, or the celebration of our Lord's Advent. The 12 days of Christmas include in the middle a massacre. A massacre. The light has come into the world. And yet the darkness is with us. And so we'll look at this text under three headings. They're there in the back inside page of the bulletin, if you want to follow along that way. Exodus, infanticide, return. So first, the Exodus. So the background here is that the wise men, the magi from the east, right after visiting and worshiping the baby presenting their gifts. They're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod is the reigning king, king of the Jews. And he'd asked them, remember, he asked them upon their arrival in Jerusalem. They stirred up the whole palace and environs by showing up in Jerusalem and asking, where's the king? A thing sure to get under Herod's skin. And he asked them upon their arrival to return to him after they've located the child so Herod could come and worship the child. And of course, he's got no intention of doing that. He wants to kill the child. Herod perceives rightly. Herod has great depth of insight into the mystery of Christmas. He sees the baby as a threat to his sovereignty, to his kingship, to his concrete political reign. He sees him as a rival king of the Jews. In many ways, this story is about the location of the true king. Where is the true king, and will the true king prevail? And so the text begins in verse 13. It tells us that after the wise men had departed, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stories about the child. And, and the word here is, is urgent, right? You, you see it in these three imperatives. Rise, take, flee. Right? There's, there's no time to waste here because the danger is imminent and the danger is mortal. The danger is mortal. Right? And practically speaking, Egypt is a sensible place to go. Right? It's a, it's a well-ordered Roman province, and it's outside the jurisdiction of Herod. 
And there were a lot of Jews there. The first century Jewish writer, Philo, tells us that in about 40 AD, there were nearly a million Jews living there, most of whom probably lived in Alexandria, which was the cultural center of Egypt. And surely, families lived there from, for centuries, going back to the Babylonian exile. Whenever there were serious dislocations and threats in Israel, you could understand that Jewish families would flee down into Egypt for refuge. And so the angel continues at the end of verse 13 and says, For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Herod knows what Christmas means. He knows it means the end of our autonomy. The end of our little petty fiefdoms. The end of our own little kingdoms. Interior kingdoms, political kingdoms. He gets what the story's about. And and we should see here something that Matthew's doing, which I think helps unlock the passage. Remember the original Moses Exodus story, right? In that story, you have a genocidal king, the Pharaoh. He seeks the destruction of the chosen seed. The midwives, the Hebrew midwives are commanded to throw all the male Israelite babies into the Nile River. And then Moses is protected. He subsequently flees from Egypt into the wilderness. And after that particular Pharaoh dies, you have the return of Moses to Egypt. And then the subsequent accomplishment of the exodus. So Moses escapes from Egypt. The Pharaoh dies. He returns to Egypt. Exodus occurs. Same thing is happening here. Here you have a genocidal king of the Jews. He seeks the destruction of the chosen seed. You have protection. You have flight from Israel. Then after the the Herod, the new Pharaoh dies, Jesus returns to Israel to accomplish our exodus. Our exodus from sin and death. So the story here in Matthew, and Matthew is the only one who records this incident, has deep resonances with the texture of the whole biblical narrative. It's important to see that Herod is a new pharaoh. He's a new bloodthirsty tyrant. And he seeks to destroy the deliverer of God's people. So with that, we come to verse 14. Joseph obediently takes the child and his mother by night, just as Israel fled by night from Egypt during the original exodus. And the text says he remains there until the death of Herod, till the death of the new Pharaoh. So the family has to move. There is, you know, even apart from the story, even if we didn't have the story, there is a deep sympathy in Scripture for aliens, right, for strangers, and for exiles. The law is full of commands to treat them with full dignity and to give them the protection of the Torah. And this is not a trivial thing on the surface of Israel's life. It's rooted in the fact that they are themselves, or were anyway, a despised nomadic people. They were an intruder, if you will, that was welcomed into Egypt. 
The whole nation was welcomed in Egypt and saved there from a famine, from an economic catastrophe in their homeland. And that kind of sympathy for the alien and the exile and the stranger should only be strengthened by this story here. Right? The, the agony and the dislocation, the economic catastrophe that befalls refugees, here falls upon the Lord and his family. And this trip would be a dangerous trip. It's about a 150-mile minimum journey. And it would take weeks to make this trip. And so the story is significant because surely it forms part of our Lord's extraordinary sympathy. He's perhaps a couple years old at this time, and he, they would have lived in Egypt for a few more years. He would remember the story. He would remember the trip. He certainly would remember the trip back. And he grows up with this extraordinary sympathy for the despised and for the marginalized and for those on the borders of Israel's life and beyond those borders. Right? Whatever, whatever one thinks the modern state should do about immigration, all Christians can agree on this, that the presence, the presence of the stranger or the foreigner or the other presents an enormous opportunity for the new society, right? the holy nation without borders or boundaries, namely the holy Catholic Church. So, in the middle of verse 15, we come to the first of three Old Testament citations in this text. This, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then he cites Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. The original citation here refers to the Exodus under Moses. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is referred to in the Old Testament as God's firstborn son. And so here we see that Jesus, the son of God, is the new Israel. In addition, in the Hosea text, in the prophet the reference to the Exodus is followed by the fact that Israel will go into a future exile and need yet a further deliverance or Exodus. Now, this is a little bit difficult, but it's a very important sort of long-term theme in the biblical narrative. It's prominent in the prophets, especially in Isaiah, namely that there's a coming great Exodus in Israel's future a grand deliverance of which the exodus from Egypt was just a foretaste, right? That great monumental deliverance pointed to a future deliverance, a deliverance that would usher in a new world. And it is that future greater exodus that Jesus, God's son, here called out of Egypt has come to effect. So, if you remember in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, I believe, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he says that I am going to Jerusalem so that I can accomplish my exodus there, referring to his death and resurrection. He himself calls what he's doing this greater prophetic exodus. 
And so a great exodus has arrived in this text. It's drawing on the first exodus, but it's pointing us to this exodus from sin, from death, from darkness. This exodus means for us, of course, the exchanging of our own entrenched sovereignty over our lives for the sovereignty of this king, an exchange Herod is not willing to make. Second point here, then, is the infanticide. So Herod, the king of the Jews, the Pharaoh, realizes he was tricked. And he becomes furious. Right? When men like this lose control, they become furious. It ha- the control must be reasserted or regained. And just like the Pharaoh before him, the Egyptian Pharaoh, he seeks to destroy the chosen seed. So what does he do? Well, Matthew tells us what he does. Right? He sends death squads out to kill all male children under two in Bethlehem and its environs. Now, this is in perfect accord with what we know about Herod's later years. In fact, it would be one of his lesser crimes. It would be hardly noteworthy. He was paranoid, we know that. He was power hungry. He committed a whole raft of monstrous crimes. He had hundreds of his court officials executed. He slaughtered about half the Jewish Sanhedrin. Slaughtered them. He executed his own wife. He killed three of his own sons. He was an underling of Caesar Augustus at the time, and Caesar Augustus famously quipped, it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. This is who we're dealing with here. And so Matthew's portrayal of the way Herod reacts here is in perfect accord with the historical record. He kills the males here, of course, because Jesus was a male, and he's trying to rid us, rid himself, of, of some alternative threatening king. He kills the males under two because that's the time he calculated with the information about the star from the Magi. Now, Bethlehem's not a big town. Right? We have actually some demographic data on it. This, this town... At this time, in an attempt to kill these infants, you are probably talking about the death of anywhere from a dozen to two dozen children. Right? Now, in the original Exodus story, right, the Pharaoh orders the execution of all Israelite males. Right? And the midwives refuse, and then he commands all of his people to kill all the Israelite babies. Moses escapes, and here, Jewish babies are ordered to be killed while Jesus escapes. And then you get this summary citation, a heartbreaking citation from Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was Jacob's wife. She was considered the mother of Israel. Her grave was near Ramah, 
just a handful of miles from Jerusalem. In the original context, this is a text about Israel going into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And so what the, what the citation means, and it's a difficult citation, it's caused trouble in the history of the church. This is a picture of the mother of Israel crying from her grave. Rachel's long dead by the time Jeremiah cites the passage. It's a picture of the mother of Israel crying from her grave at the prospect of her children, her descendants going into exile. So Rachel is personifying here the weeping of Israel as it goes into exile. Her children are no more as a nation. They are expelled from the land in which her bones are laid to rest. Now, like the Hosea text, though, if you, if you look at Jeremiah 31, we had it read here this morning as the Old Testament lesson. The larger context is a context of hope. Right? The context of this citation speaks of Israel as God's son and actually commands Israel to stop weeping and promises a return from exile and a new covenant. And so while this is a grim passage, Matthew is hinting in the text that the tears of Israel, the tears of Israel, metaphorically described as Rachel's tears, are about to come to an end. That's what Matthew is doing with this citation from Jeremiah. The Davidic king born in this Bethlehem, the son who is the new Israel, has escaped. He has escaped Herod the new Pharaoh, and thus a new exodus the world's redemption from darkness is at hand. Christmas thrusts us out into this story, into this narrative. So the third point, beginning at verse 19, is this return. Herod dies. Joseph's told in another dream to return to the land of Israel because those who sought the child's life are dead. It's the exact same language used in Exodus of Moses. Right? Moses is, is Addressed in the wilderness, and the text says there in Exodus 4, the men who are seeking your life are dead. You can return. So Joseph heads back, and he hears that Archelaus, right, a ruthless man, is reigning in place of his father Herod. See, so when Herod died, they took his little fiefdom, his little part of Judea and Galilee, his little Roman underling job, and they split it and divvied it up among his sons. And so Joseph knows that Archelaus, Herod's son, is reigning in place of his father. And so he's directed by an, a dream again out of that region up into the despised region in the north of Galilee. But we know from Scripture that Galilee was full of Gentiles. It was way north, further north than despised Samaria. So there's a great disdain that many Jews had for Galilee. Remember in John's Gospel, Jesus is at, uh, the people ask, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Search and see, they say, that no, no prophet arises from Galilee. So he's directed basically to no place. Right, to some unimportant little county. And verse 23 tells us he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. 
And then we get this third citation that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. When Matthew says prophets, plural, he's not citing a particular prophet. He's citing something that's just woven into the warp and woof of the prophets. Something built in to the Old Testament expectation about the Messiah. Now, Galilee was despised, but Nazareth Nazareth was despised even by the Galileans. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, in Galilee, Philip tells Nathanael, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's Nathanael. He's a citizen of despised Galilee. He responds with, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, it's like being a resident of Orange County and talking about how bad Rock Tavern is. Right? That's what this is. He's in Galilee, which everyone thinks is nowhere. But they all mock Nazareth. That's the worst place to live in Galilee. And so you know, this means that when Matthew says he'll be called a Nazarene, he means it derisively, right? This is not a compliment. If you look at Acts 24, Christians are called, and this is a mocking title, they are called the sect of the Nazarenes. You may, have, you may know the organization, the Voice of the Martyrs, right? They, they track Christian killings and suffering around the world. They have a magnificent magazine and website where you can see the state of the church persecuted around the world. They sell these little bracelets. It's a little wristband. It's black, and it has an orange Arabic N on it. An orange Arabic N. Why do they sell them? Because in the Middle East, ISIS and other Islamic terrorist groups Mark the houses of Christians with the, with, the, with the N in Arabic. What does the N mean? A Nazar, a follower of the Nazarene lives here. These are the Nazarenes. N marks them for death, or at least for dislocation. This means Jesus will be despised. He shall be called a Nazarene. He will have the humblest and lowliest of origins, He grows up in despised Nazareth, not royal Davidic Bethlehem. He's not known as Jesus of Bethlehem. He's known as Jesus of Nazareth, even though he was born in Bethlehem. And this is a theme basic to the prophets, right? The most famous of it, of course, is in the grand vision of Isaiah 53, which says that He's a shoot out of dry ground with no form or no majesty that we should look at him or no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men even from his childhood. And so he's going to be called a nobody from nowhere, derisively. He's not from Yale. He's not from Harvard. He's from Mississippi somewhere. He does not have credentials. He does not have pedigree. He does not have status. 
And so much of the world depends on this. And again, the kind of kingdom and kingship that is in view with Christ's coming is unmasked here. It's unveiled for the world to see. Herod doesn't like it. We tend to not like it. Let me, let me conclude. A couple things about this text. First thing the text does is it reminds us that there is a kind of ancient warfare, an enmity going on. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. God says, imposes a kind of enmity. He says, I will put enmity between you, right, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Right? That very ancient warfare, that's what's manifested when Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, attempts to destroy the chosen seed. So this is what I mean by saying Christmas is, is a kind of uh, shadowy, menacing holiday. Because with the incarnation, that ancient war moves into this earnest, you know, its final phase. Herod is the seed of the serpent, right? Attempting to destroy the seed of the woman. And so think about this. You would never know this from the ethos of Christmas, but the incarnation of the Son of God unleashes violent, irrational bloodshed on the world. Right? I think of the words of the Irish poet Yeats who said, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, and the blood-dimmed tide drowns the ceremony of innocence. This is what we have here. And this warfare has behind it dark, malignant, spiritual forces. If you go to Revelation chapter 12, it's like having the curtain pulled back on the scene here in this text. You might recall in Revelation 12, there's a pregnant woman. She's radiant with splendor. She's a heavenly figure. Right? She has a crown of stars over her head. She has the moon under her feet. She's giving birth to the Messiah. Who is she? She's Israel. Right? She's Sarah. She's Rachel. She's Rebecca. She's Hannah. Finally, she's Mary. And she gives birth to the Messiah. And these satanic forces seek to devour her child. This is just an apocalyptic way of saying what Matthew narrates in this text. There's a war in heaven in that scene. And it's part of that heavenly war that includes the angel of the Lord who appears to Joseph in this passage. So this is not just a political story. Behind it, there's an ancient warfare. Behind it, there are these cosmic malicious forces. As Shakespeare would say, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are ever dreamt about in your philosophy. And so this battle is played out in the lives of this one storm-tossed family. And the violence in this text means that the world's salvation is at hand. Christmas then means war. Because all hell, and really all heaven, break loose when the child appears. So again, at the, at the risk of being repetitive, Herod does not think Jesus is 
harmless. He thinks he's a mortal threat. He sees him as anything but a nice moral teacher who will just leave us unmolested. You know what Herod leaves? He leaves 20 or so families bereaved of their children because he must be free of Christ the King. Christmas leaves real scars in the world. And you know what? There is no Christmas joy without lamenting these children. Right? There should be an international day of mourning the week after Christmas for these children. And Christmas leaves us then with a choice because you know what? We all have little Herods in our heart. But this is why when Jesus appears, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Herod wants to save his life. So do we. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will keep it to eternal life. Paul says there's a kind of enmity in our hearts. This enmity theme, the Apostle Paul says, the natural man is at enmity with God. We must retain our sovereignty. Right? Deep in us, there is something that would rather kill the child than submit to him. Right? And so we're confronted with this choice. I think if you think I'm exaggerating, then you don't know yourself that well. Maybe you've, sometimes we don't like to look down there and see that deep entrenched stuff that would rather be rid of the child than submit to the child. We are not coming at this neutrally. There's enmity. Thomas Nagel, he's a Very well-known professor. He's retired now. He taught at NYU. He's a a professor of law and philosophy. Um, Nagel's an atheist. But he, he, he illustrates the fact that when it comes to this Herodian hostility, none of us are neutral. He says this. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I fervently hope that there is no God. In other words, he's admitting, like, I've got a Herod thing going on here. I'm not coming to this as a detached observer, just objectively looking at the evidence. I have a fervent hope. He says, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then he goes on to say this. My guess is that this is a cosmic authority problem. And it is not a rare condition. Right? That's like just stepping up to the microphone and saying, I'm with Herod. It's a remarkable statement. So we all face the same choice. The one Herod faced, 
Kiss the sun or be shattered by the sun. Repent or perish. Moses or Pharaoh. Herod or Christ. Herod has chosen to be shattered. And he and the empire he represents, the Roman Empire, is already on the way out. They're already breathing their last gasps as the scene unfolds. That's a story for another time, but it's a great political irony that Herod is trying to protect what is clearly slipping out of his hands. So this is a text which is, I think, an important text. It always occurs the week after Christmas. It reminds us that all of our hopes for victory or for justice or for liberation are lodged in the Nazarene, in this child. And that there's going to have to be a renunciation of self-sovereignty to embrace this sovereignty. Choose the child. Choose the child, the despised servant of the Lord who will end Rachel's weeping. Who has come, as the prophets foretold, to effect a greater exodus in the heart of our guilt, our shame, our bondage, our hostility. So thanks be to God for the protection of Jesus the Nazarene who shall indeed wipe away Rachel's tears. Amen. Amen.